Today's episode of Animal Spirits is sponsored by Navaplan by Advicent. Built on the most precise calculation engine in the financial planning market, Navaplan empowers advisors to cater their services to any client from simple goals-based assessments to advanced cash flow planning analysis. To see how Navaplan helps model some of the concepts and strategies discussed on this episode, visit advicent.com slash animal spirits. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We get a ton of questions every week, but we're only able to answer a handful each episode. So once a quarter or so, we'll be doing shows like this entirely dedicated to some of the emails that we receive. Later in the show, we're going to be bringing on our friend Tony Stick from Advicent, but let's start with the mailbag. Ben, what's the first question that we got? All right. How do you determine when things are getting out of weight in a portfolio? I know it's probably situational basis and risk assessment, but I was just curious if there are some general rules when to think about things are getting too top heavy and things need to be moved around. Good question. Well... There's a few different ways to answer this. Are you talking about at the individual security level? Are you talking about stocks versus bonds? Are you talking about style of investing? There's probably more people these days dealing with the individual security stuff, whether it's crypto or a big stock that they're holding, a tech stock or something that has gotten too big of their portfolio. I'm guessing there's a lot of that going on. How do I know when it's gotten too far out of whack and I need to trim it? Here's a decent rule of thumb. When you're thinking about it too often, when it's making you nervous, when you're checking the screen... 15 times a day. Oh, shoot. I think I'm talking to myself. When something in your portfolio is either keeping you up at night or you're thinking about it when you don't want to, that's probably a good internal warning sign that the position is larger than it should be. So if your lower back starts hurting like George Soros, it's time to get out. Exactly. Exactly. But do you think it's reasonable? Yeah. Well, I also just think having some rules on this. I'm not going to have an individual security be more than 10, 15, 20% of my portfolio, or I'm not going to let stocks get to more than X percent. I'm going to have some sort of bans on it. I think you just have to have rules to guide you. That's so the simplest. This is the personality thing here. Like You and I are very different people. Like, Are you a list person? I feel like you have lists and notes. <laughs> <laughs> like what kind of... No, I don't think I'm a list person. Uh, just like you do things well. Methodical by the book. Yeah. My wife said to me this morning, oh, so I... Quick tangent. So Kobe's got like his big boy bed. So we converted the crib into a bed and he's got the wooden panels that go across the thing. So you has got the wooden panels that go across the bed. Then you put the box spring on, then you put the bed on. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But the wood panels are supposed to be screwed into the bed. I didn't do that. So they keep falling down and it's been a huge pain in the butt. So finally she's like, will you just take care of this already? Oh. <laughs> so I, I screwed the wood into the bed. I put the box spring on, I put the bed on. So last night she's saying to me, why does this bed feel so like soft or weird? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so we were in the bedroom today and she sits down. She's like, you idiot. So I said, what did I do? She goes, the box spring's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> you did it on <laughs> So we sat on the bed and we completely sunk in. <laughs> anyway, why are we talking about this? What was the question? Because oh, rules. you don't follow directions, basically? Yeah. So that's the point. I don't follow directions. And I think a lot of people are like me where they don't have these defined rules and bands. And even though that might work for people with your side of the brain, Ben, for people like me, I think a more different answer 
is when you're getting worried about it. I think that's a yep. reasonable answer. The problem with that is you worry at the wrong time. So you have Tesla. True, true. That's a big part of your portfolio and it goes to 50% of your portfolio because it's up 700% in 2020. And then it drops 30%. And now what do you do? So that's why you have to have some rules. So you're taking a little bit off when it's going up and you're adding a little bit when it's going down. Yeah, but if... All right. You're not wrong. All right. Next question. I'm 29 with 91K in my traditional 401k. After listening to your episode on traditional versus Roth and a few conversations with my friends, I feel like a fool for not having chosen a Roth 401k as early as possible. I make about 75 grand a year and have enough cash and CDs to cover the conversion. But I'm wondering if you think it's worth it. Wow, a 29-year-old with CDs. This is a unicorn. No idea where I plan on retiring. Currently live and work in California. This person definitely follows directions. Ben, <laughs> this question is totally for you. I guess the thing is, if you have that money, I mean, what's the opportunity cost of investing that money if you have the difference in taxes? Isn't that basically the same thing as getting the tax break going forward? And I'm sure we're going to get a lot of our Roth tax experts coming on here saying, no, you're because of the deferral, it still works out to pay better. Can I just say one thing? If you say, quoting this person, I feel like a fool for not having chosen a Roth 401k as early as possible, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And honestly, if this person's financial house is in very good order. And guess what? At age 29, just start making Roth contributions now and start from scratch and not worry about what you've already put in there. That's probably the easiest route is from what I would say. All right. Thank you for putting on Animal Spirits. Look forward to on most Wednesdays and become a regular podcast for my wife and I. The there you go. couple that listens to Animal Spirits together stays together. We are both 30, dual income, no kids, extremely fortunate to have a very steady incomes, high savings rate, no debt, no house, max out our Roth IRAs, and my f- workplace 403B. All leftover cash is put into a brokerage account, like our retirement accounts is well diversified. As we are 30 and may have some major decisions to make in the coming two to five years, such as moving kids, career developments, and buying a house, how soon do we start to think about allocating our money into more cash conservative management? So... Basically, they're thinking we have a really good savings rate, but we know kids are going to be expensive, a house down payment, all this stuff. I think that's if you're thinking that way, first of all, you're already ahead of the game. But second of all, if you start putting aside a hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there for some of these goals that are coming online, that's a pretty good way of making sure you're not freaking out about it at the time. I think I love this idea. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, without ever knowing what the, I mean, you could back the envelope of house down payment, obviously. Kids, is a little harder to come by. But I think if you set aside a cushion for that stuff, just to make sure you're prepared and not stressing out because that could be a stressful time in your life, I'm all for that. How about this though? Did you find that you didn't spend as much money on a newborn as maybe you thought because you get a lot of help potentially from family and friends, either in terms of hand-me-downs or here's my crib or your parents are going to buy you a new crib? Like It's not as expensive. I don't think it was as much money as I initially thought it would be. There's some of that in I mean, whatever, we had twins. So for us, it was still pretty expensive. But I also find that you don't spend nearly as much money on yourself when you have a newborn, especially the first few years and you're not doing as much. I think you cut back on your own lifestyle a little bit. Good point. That helps. All right. My question relates to how Ray Dalio keeps telling people they need to get currency diversification. How exactly do I get currency diversification? Do I need to convert USD to euros or yuan and then buy ETFs? All right. Let's keep this short. Just ignore. If you're asking us how to get currency diversification... You don't need to be worrying about getting currency diversification. No oh, disrespect. The, what? The easy answer is you buy international stocks. That's how you get to currency diversification and you don't hedge it. But I think this person is being very specific. There are ETFs where you could literally buy foreign currencies. You should not do that. That's like a market that is probably even wilder than crypto in some ways because it's open 24 hours a day. There's like trillions of dollars. It's one of those liquid markets in the world. 
yeah, there's like always currencies is not there's always some one in a thousand year storm that comes every few months just avoid you don't need it okay if things continue in the current path with stocks up and bonds down many funds and portfolios are going to be due for some rebalancing at the end of the quarter is that likely to cause bonds to move out of their current downtrend other potential effects thoughts on this very interesting question and a good observation and there's over a trillion dollars in targeted funds so I don't think you could discount what this person is saying. Now, I don't know that there's necessarily any way to like take advantage of this. I don't even want to call it a fact because I have no empirical evidence, but I think that there's probably something to this. Yeah. I guess the question is, are the rebalances into bonds and out of stocks going to put a floor underneath bond prices and a cap on interest rates? Mm, I don't know about that. Maybe in the short term. Yeah. It could cause markets to... This is like the flows over pros thing we keep coming back to where maybe the macro stuff doesn't matter as much for some time periods when this stuff happens and the flows overwhelm whatever the market fundamentals are. That would make sense to me for a time though. I don't think that's forever. But yeah, I think you could see some weird stuff with this rebalancing. Ben, is it possible to have a diversified portfolio by only investing in 10 or fewer stocks? Are there stocks you can buy that invest in other diversified portfolios? Maybe a kind of one-stop shop for investing diversification? Well, there's a target date fund like we just talked about. Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate of sorts, invests in all sorts of different things. But at the end of the day, that's a single security. So to answer your first question, can you get diversification by only investing in 10 or fewer stocks? I think you can. If you invest in one stock from each sector, now, are you going to outperform the market doing that? Maybe, maybe not. But can you get diversification with 10 stocks? Sure, why not? So for example, the Dow has 30 stocks, and that tracks the S&P 500 pretty darn closely. So what's the sweet spot? Is it 15 or 20? I don't know the answer of that. But if you're asking this question, 10 stocks is probably a little bit too aggressive. I mean, that's adding a lot of idiosyncratic risk to your portfolio. If you're Meaning? Depending on the stocks, the Dow is 30 blue chip stocks. If you're picking 10 random stocks... Meaning if you're trying to get exposure to financials and you just happen to pick Wells Fargo, then that wasn't great. A stock portfolio, your range of outcomes is way wider with that few of holdings because you could do really well and hit out of the park, or you could just do horribly. So that's the trade-off there is that you just increase your range of returns over time. Okay, how about a let me find a real estate one here. Okay. I like your opinion on a debate I have with started with friends and coworkers. People are coming to us to settle a lot of debates here, Michael. <laughs> Recently turned 40, married with two kids, wife and I both work, wife works from home. I work for a large freight railroad, live in a desirable area in the western burbs of Minneapolis. Bought our house for 260 in 2015. Could possibly sell now for closer to 500k. We owe about 190k in the house, no other debt. We've been thinking about moving for over a year for many reasons. Should we cash in on the insane housing market? Even after fees, we might net nearly a quarter of a million dollars. Leave Minneapolis area and move to northern Minnesota or North Dakota where I grew up. If we move, would most likely have to start a new career at 40. Thought about taking a gap year. Wife would keep her job. Basically taking a year or less to reevaluate what I want to do. Go back to school. Have a few ideas. Stupid or the opportunity of a lifetime? Opportunity of a lifetime. I love this idea. I think if you're going to do something like this, I think now is the time to do it. With more remote work opportunities, if you could go from a hotter housing market to a lower cost of living area, if that's something you wanted to do anyway... I don't really see the problem with doing this if that's a place you're going to be happy living. One of the reasons why most people can't just pick up and move is because family, right? You're not just going to leave your family and just say, see, I'm starting a new life. But this person, it's the opposite. They would be moving from Minnesota back to where their family is. 
So this sounds like if you could cash out of the house, assuming that price is where you're going to be moving, there's some sort of arbitrage there, then I love it. I think it's a great idea. It's a weird time to do this when you have little kids. So they said they have kids in elementary school. That's why it'd be tough. But if the wife is still going to be working and have her remote job, I, I mean, whatever. It seems like now is not a bad time to take a risk. I like it. This is a good one. I was curious to hear your thoughts on mid-cap indices. Ben, where do you fall on this index versus indice? So indexes versus indices. I think you can only say indices if you're British, if you have a British accent. Okay, Otherwise, fair. you have to say indexes. We hear a lot about large and small cap, but seldom hear about mid. Why do you think that is? How does the performance stack up? What's attractive here versus small cap? Overall curious why they are rarely mentioned. My very first boss in this industry, we did asset allocation for hospitals, insurance companies. That was his sweet spot to find returns. He would always have a mid-cap fund manager in the portfolios. And I think it might have just been timing over everything. Usually if small caps are doing well, mid-caps are going to do well as well. I think it kind of it doesn't work like that where mid-caps are going to do well for large caps, but it certainly is a forgotten area of the market where you have the huge behemoths on one end that people pay a lot of attention to. And then small cap is seen as the risky side of the portfolio where you're going to make up some returns in a risky market and mid-cap fall somewhere in between and don't get a lot of love. You know what's interesting, Ben? Let's forget about the last year because the last year is basically from the bottom. Over the last three years, the S&P 500 is outperforming the Russell 2000, which is outperforming the mid-caps. That's interesting. That's surprising. So mid-caps are lagging. I guess a lot of it but depends on which... To your point, and they're lagging over five years as well. Usually, I thought they were somewhere in the middle. Maybe that was historically true, and it's no longer true. Okay, anyway. a lot of it probably depends on what mid-cap index you're looking at too. But a lot of times you'll see people talk about the equal-weighted index as well. So you take an S&P 500 equal-weighted. That's, That's more or less a mid-cap. RSP and IJH track very, very closely. But here's a hypothesis. You actually know a lot of names in the small cap index. And obviously, you know a lot of names in the large cap index. I'm looking at the biggest names in IJH. And of the top 10, the only one that I'm familiar with is William Sonoma. Okay. So this is the difference of indexes. So if you look at the S&P Midcap 400, which is MDY, Caesars Entertainment is there, Penn National Gaming, I recognize. GameStop was there. I guess those are some of the ones I recognize. I don't recognize many of these holdings either. Then I'm going more deep into the mid cap. You got five below, Sam Adams. Let's see what else. Uh, I haven't heard of uh, Owens Corning. I guess if you wanted it to be ultra diversified, you could have a small, mid, and large. Is it necessary? I don't know. But I guess if, let's say, you're a stock picker and you wanted to try to find some. Is it necessary? Areas. Is what? drinking my own urine necessary? What? Dodgeball. Dodgeball. Oh, uh, dodge. <laughs> You know, that one, that was a huge disappointment for me. No way. Really? Yeah. yeah I thought that Stop. one was. I mean, with Stiller and Vince Vaughn, it, I mean, there's and you some. Love, you sorry, love but the that's a movie with better gifts than. Oh, Justin Long. You love Justin Long. I do Dude. like Justin. I'm sorry. sorry. Vince Vaughn as a I'll die on this player. Hell. I'll uh, die on this hell. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. I just, it didn't do it for me, man. I thought it was overrated. All right. Let's do a career one. 30 years old, working in advertising, doing media research and strategy. I've also started investing in what money I can, trying to keep it reasonable, not gamble it all away, been getting interested in finding ways to combine the media industry and research background. I know there's media, telco, focus, equity, research roles. Is that switch possible? What sort of obstacles would I expect? And do you have any advice in making this career change? I tell you what, maybe it's just the age of our viewers. And I obviously have a wide range of people, but I think once you hit your early, mid, late 30s or 40s, that's when you start thinking of a career change. And I'm not happy. And now it's time to do it. 
You know, it's interesting. Most of the I'm looking to get into finance questions are on the wealth management side. They're not usually on the I want to be an analyst side. So I would say that if you have the right personality and you could bang down some doors and really sell yourself, then maybe. But aren't these roles for young people out of University of Pennsylvania? Typically. So like sell-side research would be one. I guess maybe you could try to work your way into some sort of hedge fund that's focused on media strategies. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you have the credentials and you could sell yourself, then there's an opportunity, but it's going to be difficult. But I agree. It's just what's your foot in the door. But that'd be the way I'd like a hedge fund analyst or someone who runs a media specific strategy or a sell side analyst, I guess. But yeah, you're right. A lot of that is I was in investment banking first or I have my CFA, that sort of stuff. That's kind of the way that world works. Here's another one on the FX market. The foreign exchange or Forex market is the largest financial market in the world. By the way, Ben, isn't it always weird? Like for whatever reason, FX seems to bring out like a ton of scam artists. Definitely. The trading strategies that they're going to sell. Right? So it's larger even in the stock market with a daily volume of $6.6 trillion. Wow. Why certain currencies appreciate while others depreciate is a mystery to me. The inclusion of an FX trading strategy in a diversified portfolio? Question mark. Yeah, no. Please do not trade currencies. Why do some appreciate and some others depreciate? Remember like interest rate parity and other stuff that we learned in the CFA that doesn't actually hold in the real world? It's a really tough game. And you also have not just the macro stuff you're trying to play off of one another, but other people hedging. And it would be a weird way to invest and try to understand that market. Is it broadly speaking a function of economic strength or weakness and interest rates? That's fair, but yeah, it's... I wouldn't even know how to where to begin there. It's a place where trading strategies you know go to die. Currencies are too complicated for me. I'm just going to stick to cryptocurrencies. Honestly, you probably have a better chance. Okay, here's one. I'm a new investor, so this might be a basic question, but I always hear people say the best time to buy is after a crash when things look bleak, i.e. 2009 in the US. That begs a question. Should I apply that approach to other markets? For example, what are your thoughts on buying the GREK, G-R-E-K ETF, since Greece's economy is a mess? I did a little research on this one. If you think that the... U.S. stock market is concentrated. Where do you get a look at the Greek holdings? So top 10 holdings in the Greek ETF, 64% is made up by those stocks. The number one company is almost 17% of the total. I think investing in some of these countries like Greece that has been beaten down and is so much smaller is probably even harder than picking stocks in some cases. At this point, isn't the U.S. market almost unique to any other market in the world? in terms of because it is so huge. I mean, I guess you could say Japan, maybe the UK, but it's. I think looking at that is there's certain countries that probably sometimes won't come back. And actually, to be fair to Greg, over the past year, this thing is up almost 80%. So it's had a comeback. But yeah, I would have a hard time doing this. So here, since remember when the European sovereign debt crisis started going crazy and then it rolled into so since 2014 what do you think the drawdown is for this ETF since it topped in 2014 it's still below those highs yes well below those highs from 2014 70%? 60% still 60% below 2014 levels so bottom fishing sounds pretty good in one of these things but when you realize it's like less than 1% of the market weight of the global portfolio it's this is basically like a stock pick as opposed to a picking a country so Betting it'll come back is not necessarily now. Could this be an unbelievable, like it could have a rocket ship a few years or something for sure? But it's harder than it sounds. 
That's what I'm saying. All right. I wonder if you guys could do a special topic episode on becoming a financial planner. I've sort of been waiting for more content on this, as you have mentioned several times over the last few months, and you've been getting a lot of listener questions about it. Who do you see are those that succeed or will succeed and those who will fail? What's coming up in the next five to 10 years that you expect to arise that new advisors should be aware of? What trends are coming? Do you think the industry will grow because of more millennials coming into money or more boomers retiring? Or do you think it will shrink because of things like robo-advising? What paths are there to take to break into doing financial advice-related work? Uh, That's a big question. Okay. At the end of the day, this is a relationship business. We're giving people advice about their money, their portfolio, their lifestyle, their spend, their savings, the things that are absolutely most important to them. And I don't care what happens with technology in the future. There will always be people that want that human advice. So this is the Jeff Bezos, ask yourself what won't change here first. That's exactly right. So the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that have the best people skills. If you could sell yourself, if you're a good listener, if you're empathetic. Good communicator, good marketer, all that stuff will never go out of style. Yeah. And of course, basic financial literacy is important. Obviously, you need to be able to explain what you're talking about. But this is not a, at least our role, it's not necessarily a mathematic figure out the market role. It's a relationship business. It asked if we think it'll shrink because of things like robo-advising. Do you think if we would have gone back five to seven years when robo-advisors really started taking off and getting bigger, people would be surprised at how little publicity those places get these days? I mean, it's basically just another function that has been built into a lot of places. So Betterman and Wealthfront were the first ones that came along. They're both great, but then Vanguard did it themselves and so did Charles Schwab. And now you don't really hear that as a threat as much as people thought it would be because it's just another tool because it's basically a really cool technology that everyone else has just implemented now. And so, I don't know, I I guess coming in the next five to 10 years, technology is going to get better. I think people have been wondering, well, when are fees going to come down for financial advisors? I think look at it the opposite way. When are margins going to come down? Because all these financial advisors are going to have to do something to have better toolkits and skills for their clients. So Michael Kitsy's talked on a recent podcast with Carl Richards about how he did this big fee study. And they find that some advisor fees are actually going up in the industry. And the thing about that is because advisors are doing way more than they ever did in the past. In the past, advisors picked mutual funds or stocks. Now they're doing actual financial planning. They're doing tax planning. They're doing estate planning. They're doing all these things that they never really did before and just pretended to do. And so I think that's part of it is financial advisors are just going to have to do a lot more things to retain their clients because the playing field has been leveled in a lot of ways. That'd be my answer. Well said. All right. I'd like to buy a house sometime approximately three to five years from now. I have almost no cash aside from an emergency fund. I saved quite a large portion of my salary and invested in a total US stock fund. I have no desire to save more cash for a future down payment on a home because I'd like to remain aggressive with my stock allocation rather than keeping so much cash. Okay. Listen, fair enough. My advice for this, if you need the down payment in three to five years, I don't know, I'd probably recommend a more conservative allocation. But listen, teach their own. Obviously, if you're saying this so confidently, then you fully understand the risks that you're taking and I hope they work out. As long as the market's not, I don't know, in a big drawdown when you need the money, you should be fine. Obviously, it can happen, but I hope it doesn't. I guess the good thing you think about is, let's say you're up 50% on this money and you go to sell to do your down payment and you happen to be in a 15% drawdown. Well, I still made some money. So as long as you're not anchoring to those top levels and you're okay selling in a state of drawdown, if that's what happens, then you just have to understand what you're getting yourself into. All right. I want to talk about insurance. 
I'm a 25-year-old CFP who was lucky enough to get a shot at being a junior advisor turned lead advisor at a shop with five full-time advisors. To give you an idea of size, we have $400 million in assets, 90% physicians and dentists. One other important note, we also have contracts with MassMutual. On this week's episode, Michael said, no whole life insurance pretty much ever. I have been wrestling with the conflict of selling whole life insurance since I began my career as an advisor. Naturally, I've tended to adopt the thinking of the partners advisors I work with. Whole life insurance has a place in clients' overall portfolios at the right time. Using a small portion of free cash flow to a limited pay product after maxing out 401k and other deferred comp options. One of the main selling points that resonates with me is a hedge against sequence of return risk. The cash value inside the 10 pay policy, for example, is a tax free bucket, not tied to the market. Instead of taking portfolio withdrawals in down years, you leave that money to recover and draw your necessary living expenses from the cash value inside the life insurance policy. What are your thoughts? Before we get to this, Ben, I want to tell you a quick story. I don't know if I ever told you this. So, one of the things at the insurance company, that they presented or that they wanted us to sell was whole life insurance for babies. Have you ever heard about this? <laughs> no. I'm not kidding. Is that like a school for ants from Zoolander? So the pitch was you get a grandparent to buy or parent to buy whole life insurance for their child or their grandchild, which is pretty freaking morbid to think about. And the reason why they would do that is they would pay it over. It would just be 10 installments. And this way you're setting a legacy up for your family. So that I guess when your grandchild dies, your great grandkids have you to thank. The whole thing is just bizarre. But I made that pitch to somebody that I know. And it was humiliating in real time. I might have cried because I realized the horror of what I was saying as the words were coming out of my mouth. And I knew that it was wrong at the time, but I didn't quite know why. I couldn't say like, well, yeah, if you put $20,000 into an insurance policy in 75 years, it could be worth a million dollars. But I didn't have the knowledge to be like, well, just put it in the market. Like It's the same thing and it's liquid and it's not tied up. Man. You know what that product is perfect for? The people who scream about government debt and say, what about the grandkids? This way, if you're buying, you're literally buying insurance for the grandkids. Anyway. That's right. So what are my thoughts on whole life insurance? Whole life insurance is not the problem. The problem is what I was taught, which is that people have money to buy whole life insurance, whether they know it or not. Oh, really? But he's only 25 years old. How does He doesn't have any money. Oh, yeah? Is he contributing to a 401k? So take some money out of that. Like just the whole th- – like that is so wrong for so many reasons. Now, okay, let's address the question. Your problem with the insurance industry is – a lot of people in the insurance industry are taught that the insurance is the answer for everything. For everything. And sometimes insurance is the answer, but not for everything. That's the main problem. Whole life insurance is not the answer for everything. It can be a way to reduce risk for certain people in certain scenarios, but it's certainly not for everyone, especially young people who are being disabled or whatever. You know who whole life insurance is great for? If you have a $40 million estate and you're going to end up writing, or your heirs are going to end up writing the government to check for $10 million in state taxes. Well, then yeah, buy insurance to replace that $10 million. I'm totally on board with that. But as a diversifier, I don't know. What about bonds? What about cash? I just, I don't, listen, there are worse things you could do. I just, I've obviously had a bad experience with whole life insurance. Okay. Should we do a couple more here? Sure. The research shows that all the stock market's returns over the past hundred years have come from a few big winners. What is the best way in your view to give yourself the best chance to capture this outside of an index fund or Ben's favorite target date fund? Doesn't the research about a few big winners contradict the long-term success of value investing? So I pulled some of the, this is the Besson Binder study that we've mentioned before, which has to be one of my favorite studies there is. But it is pretty flawed. 
That's what I'm saying. It's flawed. So it shows that 86 stocks generated half the market's return over the last 60 years. There's an obvious true but. I guess the implications are, A, you need to own the biggest winners, and I agree with that. But it doesn't mean that all of the other stocks, even though they technically might have generated a lifetime return that didn't match T-bills, nobody's buying and holding these stocks forever. So there are opportunities to make money in the stock market outside of the biggest winners. Now, to answer your question, how do you get the biggest winners? I don't know. Why are you asking us? We're not Warren Buffett. (laughs) How about this? It's very hard. Is there a tried and true way of finding these biggest winners? No, there's not. (laughs) Well, yes. Hold on. Here's where you will find the biggest winners. You will find the biggest winners with regularly double-digit growth, whether that's EPS or whatever metric you want to look at. All of the biggest winners of all time are growth stocks. I guess maybe like Walmart wouldn't technically be considered that sort of stock. But How about Berkshire? Is that technically a value stock? It's one of the biggest stocks in the S&P. It's a blend. Okay. But the biggest winners, the Amazons, the Apples, they're growth. So I guess that's probably where you look. And then you hope you get lucky and you hold on tight. This was my guess as of a blog post a couple weeks ago. I said, if I had to put my money on it, if you were talking about a $100 billion company-ish, that's going to grow to be a trillion or maybe a little below there. So the trillion you have, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Google. Then the level below that is Tesla, Facebook, Berkshire, Visa, I guess. If you had to pick a stock to get up there. All right. If I had to pick a stock to get to 500 billion, I can't pick a stock to get to a trillion. I mean, that's ridiculous. So my guess, if I had to, I said Shopify and Airbnb, those are my two where I think I would be the least amount of shocked if those companies got to that, even that like second tier. Yeah. I would say Airbnb. I would put in that, that category. I'm sure there's more, but yeah. Is there a tried and true way? No. It'll look obvious in hindsight, but not beforehand for sure. All right. Let's do one more. One more. So many advisors, including my own, seem to be increasingly relying on model portfolios to manage client accounts. There seem to be a ton of advisory services, be it BlackRock, Morningstar, or others that are trying to convince advisors that they have the best set of options for the advisors. What do you all think about the shift and is it good for clients? And who is paying for this? Honestly, yeah, I do think it's good for clients. I think that back in the day, you had the advisor be the portfolio manager. And I don't know that the average advisor was better off selecting individual securities and managers than just offloading it and basically using a target date fund. I think probably at the end of the day, investors are better off for that. And they're dirt cheap, these model portfolios. Josh Brown wrote this piece a number of years ago. And I think this is, so it's called a single stock. How do you say it? Tell me this word. Michigas. Michigas. By the way, quick side tangent, because this is one of your words. Is mensch the most opposite sounding word of what it actually is? I heard someone <laughs> call the mensch the other day. Like Every time I hear the word mensch, I think it means someone's a jerk, even though it means the opposite. Like, Is there another word that sounds so bad that actually is good? Wait, who said, did I call Phil a mensch? Wait, who? That might have been it. You might have called someone a mensch. And mensch does not sound like a compliment. It sounds like you're putting someone down. Okay. Are there, are there words like that? Anyway, Josh had a good observation. single stock. And he talked about how... Hold on. Say that word. Say that word. Michigas. Michigas. Okay. Single stock, Michigas. That basically, Michigas sounds exactly what it's trying to say. Ow. What? What does that mean? Like I'm saying that word sounds like... how oh, okay. what it. So anyway, his whole thing is like, if you're an advisor trying to implement a portfolio for someone of stocks, and you have you constantly have new people coming in, and you have Apple that's up 200%, you have this other stock that's down 50 now you're coming into different price points for different clients. Do you buy Apple when it's upper? I mean, obviously, that's the same thing with asset classes, but it's way different in single stocks because you can have things get totally out of whack and it's much harder. So the idea of these model portfolios and having rules behind them, it makes it easier to manage 
individual clients because individual stocks, they have so many more risks based on the price point you buy them at versus a whole asset class. That's how I'm looking at this in terms of the question, how it's much harder to do those individual securities per client. And I think that just makes it much more complex for the client and the advisor. Yep. Now here is Tony Stick to come in and talk about some specific questions that he was better able to answer than us. Tony is the Chief Operating Officer at Navaplan. Tony, I call you Tony Stick. Is that even how you, is it Stitch or Stick? It's neither. It's actually Stick. Stick. Stop. It's German. It means to stab. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the American pronunciation? I go by Stick or Stitch. I'm okay with either one. I used to fight that battle, but not anymore. Got it. Okay. What's your official title? See, I'm this Chief Operating Officer at Navaplan. So I oversee a few of the different customer side functions. And you've got a new podcast. I do called the Planning Desk Podcast. Now, this is a lot different than what you guys are doing. Wait, say that one more time. You said the Planning Desk? Yes, the Planning Desk. The Planning Desk. You can find us on YouTube or wherever your favorite podcasts are. And it's got more of an advisor angle. There's a lot of tech demos, a lot of relevant news. And we're just bringing on guests around practice management. A lot of fun so far, but we're still early on. We have a long way to go to catch up with Animal Spirits. Cool. All right. So the first question that we're going to talk about, I thought was great for you. Just to set the stage, here's the first sentence. I'm 38 with two kids under five. Tony, you're 28, but you've got five kids under 15. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was 28, but I do have five children under the age of 12. All right. So this is right in your wheelhouse. This is right in my wheelhouse. And it's a great question. So let's just get right to this. Please. He said, growing up, my parents taught me to be a good saver, but much of my investing knowledge was self-learned later in life. I want my kids to have a better understanding of investing and saving for retirement at a young age. When do you think is the right age to start introducing them to this idea? Why don't we just start there? What do you think, Tony? Yeah, so this is actually a fantastic question because there's a great deal of chatter, if you will, around financial literacy and how we need to empower our children to understand the value of money, not only in terms of savings, but also compounding interest and growth. So to answer the question quickly, really that for children, age of reason comes around, what, 10 or 12 years old. So really getting them at that eight, nine, 10-year-old area, that which we've done with our children. And specifically on the question, when I saw that question, it was a great question because this individual is kind of invested in UTMA accounts and other things like that. But I want to take a step back quickly and encourage these parents to make sure they're educating their children on the power of banking and debits and credits and understanding the basics of accounts, because these children need to understand if they want to purchase something, what that does to a balance, because then they quickly begin to see the impacts of decisions they make on maybe impulse purchases or being more practical. But I think there's something even better I want to bring up. And I think you guys will like this as well. I know you're both active on wealthbase.com. There's also public.com and some others. Get your kids involved early in investing. And because there are a lot of free tools out there that allows them to watch the markets, listen to influencers, and understand how people are making decisions with investments. Because if you let these children empower them with that gamification around some of these funner tools, they begin to see how the market functions. 
and the value of research, the value of different forms of investment. So that's what I would encourage this parent to do and all parents is not only enable them with banking and understanding of accounts, but also giving them tools that allows them to trade or invest or research different assets for them to kind of see how they do before they dive in. I like your idea about the banking thing because my daughter actually turned seven today. And a couple of weeks ago, she lost one of her front teeth and looked like a hockey player. And <laughs> my wife and I realized right before she went to bed, we only had a 20 in our wallet. So we gave her a 20. The next day, she lost her another tooth. So we're like, shit, we got to give her a 20 again. <laughs> Two nights in a row, so she got 40 bucks. And she's got all this money now and she's hoarding it. We're trying to talk her into doing a bank account to put it away somewhere. And that's a hard conversation to have for a seven-year-old who doesn't really understand. She wants to hoard the money and see the pile grow. I agree. Like, There's a hard place to get to when that makes sense to them. The benefit about it is like the physical actions. And I realize that we can debate whether branches are coming or going in this market, but bringing a child to a branch, open up an account, them getting that ledger, keeping track. And then if they want to go buy something, they have to go to the bank, withdraw that amount, and then they go purchase it at the store. They handle the change. That's when that process really begins for children because they see it come and go. And if you enable these kids at an earlier age, this will help them throughout high school and then in the dangerous years of college where they start getting access to credit and credit cards and they make more, let's just say, poorly decisioned purchases. So the earlier the better. Accounts have been great for my children because they see it grow. And then personally, just what I do with my kids is if they have a lot of money from parents or godparents, I have opened up self-directed brokerage accounts with each one of those children's money, but I've managed it myself. But I understand the utmost value of whether or not you can transfer that to a beneficiary. And then you build a plan with them on Advicent. And so they really understand, right? Is that the next step? <laughs> yeah. Then you go through the full comprehensive cash flow plan. And then, then I realize that with five children, I will never be allowed to retire. <laughs> End of sentence. All right. Next up, somebody is asking us about HSA accounts. For my 401k, my employer matches up to 7% and has an annual 10% profit sharing contribution. I'm currently contributing 10%, so my total 401k contributions are 27% of my income. This person might retire early. Good stuff. My employer also offers an HSA where we can invest our contributions. So my question is, should I reduce my 401k contribution to 7% to still get the full match and put the additional 3% into the HSA for retirement savings? I've heard about how the HSA is a triple tax-free when used for healthcare expenses, and I assume I'm going to have plenty of those in retirement. Am I thinking about this correctly? Well, the short answer is yes, because they're thinking about it. That's the important part. What I would change there is not actually reducing my 401k investment, but actually changing my spending behaviors to accommodate for the additional investment in the HSA. What do you mean by that? Rather than reducing that tax, because the 401k benefit of taking that pre-tax income don't take that out and put it somewhere else. Max out that pre-tax. Get up to that maximum if you can, which is 19500 this year, I believe. But try and max that out first and foremost. That's really what you should do. But I love talking about HSAs. HSAs are the triumvirate triple tax break, okay? So let's explain it very carefully. So when you contribute to an HSA from an employer plan, that money that's taken out of your check pre-tax goes into an account. You then have that HSA account sitting there, and as it grows, all that growth is then tax deferred. That's the second of the two. And then upon distribution or withdrawal, you then have that tax-free income. Now, 
the assumption, of course, is that when you start to withdraw that, you're in a different or lower tax bracket. So that tax deferred on the growth is critical. Now, I want to promote an HSA account. Ben, write this down. It's called Lively. I don't know if you've heard of Lively before. It's an independent HSA owner. So what happens when you open up an HSA is your employer will put you into their pre-canned one. When I did that my first time, I was thrown into one at one of the large wirehouse banks. And all you could do with that cash was let it sit there. I moved it to Lively, which is a pretty simple process. And now they have direct deposits going right into my Lively account. It maxes out at $7,000 a year. Okay. But then it's a TD self-directed brokerage account. So now I can manage all that money and allow that to grow under my own management. Now, here's my favorite part about HSAs that I don't think people are aware of. What you do, though, when you're a high earner or even a standard level earner, but you have low healthcare costs, pay those out of pocket. Do not take that money out of your HSA. I don't know if you guys know this, but you just keep track of your receipts and you can withdraw that at any time. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. This year, I'm going to attempt to max out my HSA at $7,000. And what I'll do is then I'll pay out all my medical expenses out of pocket. And then I'll save all those receipts. In Lively, you can actually upload those receipts for reimbursement later. When I'm 65 years old, I can reimburse that. It becomes a savings account. That money then functions. I can take that out and use it for whatever because that receipt was kept back from, say, 25 years ago. Okay. I did not know this. Yes, this is actually the power of that. And the second power of that is, of course, as you both know, healthcare costs increase significantly over time. So by paying those off now with your cash, without, of course, impacting your budgets or your funds, emergency funds, you can then use that money for later. All growth, because it's all growing in the stock market, wherever you so choose. But no one knows about that. I mean, that's the cool part with HSAs is you can collect those receipts and withdraw them at any time you want. It can be now or in 20 years. That's lively.com? It should be livelyme.com. Right, Check we'll it out. Livelyme.com. That's a great tip. We get a bunch of questions about HSAs, and honestly, I don't know anything about them, so this is very helpful. All right, we'll link to this. Yeah, that's perfect. What do you think of Ben? You love it, don't you? I do. Did you sign up for an account? So let's say you get to retirement and you have all this money in HSA, and you don't need to spend as much on healthcare as you thought, or those receipts don't quite match, and you've got more growth than you need to. Then you just pay the tax, and you can use it like it would be a 401k or IRA, basically? Yes. Yeah, you'd pay the penalty on that. In fact, sadly, my father-in-law passed away before using up his HSA, and that would be distributed to the family. That will happen. There's penalties or withdrawal fees, but that money can then go somewhere else. So even though you'd pay that penalty, just think about that growing tax deferred over time and also the pre-tax contribution growth. So it's really one of those, even if you don't, but I I would caution you from thinking you're not going to use that money because you can, again, take that money out and just cash in those receipts. So for instance, I've collected a few thousand dollars of the receipts. I can take those out at any time I want now or in the future. It's also functions as emergency fund. Again, I'm not a financial advisor, but think about it that way. If you have a couple thousand dollars with the receipts in your HSA and you get in a pinch, you can pull that out at any time. Love it. All right, Tony, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Make sure you talk with your professional first, but love it. Thanks you guys for having me so much. Thank you to Tony. Thank you to Navaplanted Advice for coming on today. Animalspiritspod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.